Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Cosmopolitan. What do you have in Jenny? I'm drinking a glass of Chardonnay, and for this week's episode, we're covering three notable missing persons cases. These are the stories of Aisha Degree, Tara Calico, and Brandon Swanson. Let's get started with the disappearance of nine-year-old Aisha Degree. Aisha was born on August 5th, 1990, in the rural community of Shelby, North Carolina, to her parents, Harold and Aquila Degree. She has an older brother named O'Brien, with whom she shared a bedroom in the family's home. The Degrees did not have a computer in their house, and Harold and Aquila made sure their children focused on school, family, and church. Aisha was described as shy, cautious, and not known to test the rules of her parents that were set up. She was an honor student and served as the point guard on her elementary school's basketball team. On February 12, 2000, Aisha's team lost their first game of the season. Though her parents remember Aisha and her teammates being upset and crying, she seemed to have gotten over it and watched her brother's game afterward. The next day was nothing out of the ordinary. The family went to church, had lunch with a relative, and returned home. And that next day was Valentine's Day, and it also was Aquila and Harold's anniversary. Aisha and O'Brien went to bed on February 13th around 8 p.m., and an hour later, a nearby car accident caused a power outage in their home. Harold checked on his children at 12.30 a.m. on February 14th when the power came back on. He saw both of his children asleep in their beds, and he checked again shortly before he himself went to bed at 2.30 a.m. and again saw them both. Not long after, 10-year-old O'Brien claimed to hear Aisha's bed squeak. He thought Aisha was just turning in her sleep and did not get up to check. At 5.45 that morning, Aquila woke up to get the children ready for school. That morning, this included drawing a bath for them because they had not been able to take one the night before due to the power outage. When she opened the children's room to wake them up before their 6.30 alarm and called them to the bath, O'Brien was in his bed, but Aisha was nowhere to be found. It's important to mention that their front door was locked when Aquila woke up. When Aquila told Harold that she could not find their daughter, he suggested Aisha might have gone over to his mother's house across the street. But when Aquila called, her sister-in-law said Aisha was not there. Aquila then called her mother, who told her to call the police. By 6.40 a.m., the first police officers had arrived on the scene. Police dogs called to the scene could not pick up Aisha's scent. Aquila went through the neighborhood calling Aisha's name, which she had awakened everyone by 7 a.m. Friends, family, and neighbors searched for Aisha. Though the exact events of the morning are not confirmed, it's widely believed that Aisha left on her own accord. She likely got out of bed not long after O'Brien had heard her moving and left their house taking only a backpack that she had previously packed with several sets of clothes and personal items. Between 3.45 a.m. and 4.15 a.m., a truck and a motorist saw her walking along Highway 18 wearing either a long-sleeved white t-shirt and pants or a white nightgown, just north of its junction with Highway 180, which is a little over a mile from her home. 
They reported this to the police after seeing a TV report about her disappearance. The motorist said that he turned his car around because he thought it was, quote, strange such a small child would be out by herself at that hour, end quote. He circled three times and saw Degree run into the woods by the roadside and disappear. It was a rainy night and the witness said that there was a quote-unquote storm raging when he saw her. County Sheriff Dan Crawford said, quote, We're pretty sure it was her because the descriptions they gave are consistent with what we know she was wearing, end quote. He added that they also saw her at the same place, headed the same direction. On February 15th, Candy wrappers were found in a shed at a nearby business along the highway near where Asia had been seen running into the woods. Along with them were a pencil, a green marker, and a yellow hair bow that was identified as belonging to her. Also found was a photograph of a black girl around Asia's age who has still never been identified. Investigators found no blood, no signs of a struggle or a car accident. It was the only trace of her found during the initial search. The next day, Aquila realized that Asia's bedroom was missing her favorite clothes, including a pair of blue jeans with a red stripe. Just a week later, the search was called off. During a news conference, County Sheriff Dan Crawford at a news conference called on the media to keep the story alive. From Aquila's account of what Asia had taken with her, investigators believe she had planned and prepared for this departure over the several days preceding her disappearance. SBI agent Bart Burrow said, quote, she's not your typical runaway, end quote. And Ben Ermini of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children noted that most children who run away are at least 12. An FBI agent also pointed to the lack of an issue she might have been running away from, such as a dysfunctional family or poor academic performance. School staff knew of no problems or incidents that could have triggered Asia to run away. Aquila and Harold were ruled out as having anything to do with their daughter's disappearance. Sadly, Asia's case did not receive much national media attention, but her family was interviewed on the Montel Williams show, and her case was briefly featured on America's Most Wanted and the Oprah Winfrey show. Asia's class at school had recently read the book, The Whipping Boy by Sid Freshman, which centers on two children running away and going on an adventure. Some have wondered if this inspired Asia to run away. On August 3rd, 2001, Asia's backpack and other items were discovered during a construction project off Highway 18 in Burke County, about 26 miles north of Shelby. It was wrapped in a plastic bag, and the book bag contained Asia's name and phone number. The FBI took it to their headquarters for further forensic analysis. Results from that testing have not been shared publicly. In 2004, acting on a tip reportedly received from an inmate at the county jail, the sheriff's office began digging at an intersection in Longdale, North Carolina. Bones were found, but turned out to be from an animal. In February 2015, the FBI announced that FBI agents, Cleveland County Sheriff's Office investigators, and State Bureau of Investigation agents were re-examining the case and re-interviewing witnesses.
15 months later, in May 2016, the FBI shared that their reinvestigation of the case had turned up a possible new lead. They announced that Asia may have been seen getting into a dark green early 1970s Lincoln Continental Mark IV, or possibly a Ford Thunderbird from the same era, along Route 18, near where she was last seen later that night. It was described as having rust around its wheel wells. In September 2017, the FBI announced that its child abduction rapid deployment team was in Cleveland County to assist in the investigation and, quote, provide on-the-ground investigative technical behavioral analysis and analytical support to find out more about what happened to Asia, end quote. The team worked alongside FBI Charlotte employees, Cleveland County Sheriff's Office investigators, and North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation agents for 10 days. On the 20th anniversary of Asia's disappearance, the FBI confirmed that the book bag contained a copy of Dr. Seuss's McElliott's Pool and a New Kids on the Block t-shirt. Neither appeared to have been her property before they were found in her bag. The book was from the library at her elementary school, and an investigator said that these were vital clues. In November 2020, an inmate named Marcus Mellon, who was convicted of sex crimes against children in 2014, wrote a letter to the Shelby Star, claiming that Asia was murdered and he knows where to find her. In February 2021, Cleveland County Sheriff Alan Norman announced that Mellon's claims had led to another dead end. In a 2013 interview with Jet Magazine, Aquila said her family, quote, still believes Asia is alive, end quote, and a billboard has been in place since Asia's disappearance over 20 years ago. Her family holds an annual walk to raise awareness and keep Asia's name in the press. Uh, we'll do something a little different than we normally do. We'll talk about each of our thoughts, theories after every case. So Del, what are your thoughts and possible theories on what happened to Asia? So I definitely think that it started out as her wanting to run away, wanting to have some freedom. I don't think that it was necessarily something nefarious going at home. I definitely agree with the people that she was inspired by the different tales that she was reading in school. And then unfortunately, what happened once she ran away, an opportunistic killer likely saw her, saw that she was alone and murdered her. I don't think that she's alive, unfortunately. I think that if she was, it would be more evidence to support that. It would be some slip-ups that happened with whomever took her, and we don't see any evidence of that. So that's my theory. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually it's like a deathbed confession uh, for whomever murdered her. I think it is a shame how many false leads keeps coming out and people using her name and her case to try to get some infamy off of it is disgusting. Uh, what are your thoughts and theories? I tend to lean towards that there was some type of abduction. I think she would, if that is the case, I think that she was probably groomed by someone that was close to her family because we did say she seemed like a more shy, cautious child. So I think it was someone that she had to have known to what extent, I don't know, maybe someone within the church, one of the neighbors, I don't know. Something 
that I have seen people talk about online is that maybe they got her out of the house under the guise of we're going to like help plan an anniversary party or an anniversary gift for your parents since their anniversary was that day. I think that could be possible. This is just such a bizarre case. I don't know many like it. And this is on, I would say like my list of if I could just get an answer to it, I would love that. Because why did to have, you know, it's one thing to be like, yeah, we'll meet after school. I'll pick you up. You would think that's what like a typical child abductor would do. Why would you say like, meet me at, you got to get out of bed at like three in the morning or something. And I don't know how a child could easily like wake themselves up at that time. Like I'm an adult and I can't, you know, I can't just get up without an alarm usually at like a specific time. So I don't know. It's so weird. And then the fact that it was raining that night too, and people I think find it kind of odd that she would be able to walk to where she was seen. And if someone was going to abduct her, say they wanted her to meet them at this specific place, that's why she was walking. And this is a rural area too. So like, keep that in mind as we talk about this. Why would you have her like run the risk of having her walk on the road. So like, I don't know, it seems like different things make sense in some ways, but then like other aspects of the case don't work. I mean, maybe someone tried to abduct her and then she got scared. She kind of like picked up on what was going on and ran away. And that's what happened. I don't know. I do think that book bag being found the person, I think somebody is whoever is responsible for this wanted that to be found. Also the fact that they found a picture of another little girl who has never been identified is so bizarre to me. And I don't know if that's maybe like a somebody knows something kind of thing, or if the police just haven't been able to like look into like the right databases. I mean, this could be like a child that's been missing and no one reported them missing. That does happen. Such a bizarre story. But Adele, I usually do discredit, like I discount the like she ran away theory, but I don't know, maybe she did like want some freedom. Who knows? Like, yeah, we said that she didn't really seem to have any issue with what was going on at home. But I don't know, maybe something did just bother her that wasn't significant to other people, but was significant to her. And she wanted to get out of there for something. I don't know. Right. And since she was someone who was more reserved, she might not have felt comfortable sharing it with anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. We just hope, you know, that her family gets answers sooner rather than later, because to go through this for so long is horrible. Exactly. Yes. Either way, you know, have some closure in the case and hopefully justice as well. Next, we'll look at the case of Tara Calica. Tara was born on February 28, 1969, and lived in Bellin, New Mexico with her mom, Patty Dole, stepfather John, and three siblings. She was a sophomore at the Valencia campus of the University of New Mexico. She had a high grade point average and planned to become a psychiatrist or psychologist and worked at a local bank. Tara enjoyed riding her bike and followed the same route along New Mexico State Road 47 just about every morning. She would sometimes ride with her mom, but often rode alone. 
Patty stopped riding with Tara after she felt that she had been stalked by a motorist. She advised her daughter to think about carrying mace, but Tara rejected the idea. On September 20th, 1988, Tara left her home around 9.30 a.m. to go on her daily bike ride. She had told her mom to come and get her if she was not home by noon. When her daughter did not return, Patty searched for her, but Tara was nowhere to be found. She soon contacted the police. Pieces of Tara's Sony Walkman and a cassette tape were later found along the road, 20 miles east of Bellin in the opposite direction of where Tara was last seen. Patty believed that she might have dropped it in an attempt to mark her trail. Several witnesses said they saw Tara riding a neon pink mountain bike, which has never been found, though no one witnessed her presumed abduction. However, several people observed a light-colored pickup truck, possibly a 1953 Ford, with a camper shell following closely behind her. Tara may have been unaware of the truck because she was wearing earphones. Rain and wind the night she disappeared washed away obvious signs of what happened to her. For weeks, friends, family, volunteers, and law enforcement agents in airplanes and in helicopters on horseback and on foot searched for Tara. Bloodhounds sought out her scent. Heat-seeking detectors scanned the terrain, but nothing ever turned up. A new development came on June 15, 1989, when a woman found a Polaroid photo of a young woman and a boy, both gagged with black duct tape and seemingly bound in the back of a van. In the parking lot of a Port St. Joe's, Florida convenience store, the woman who found the photo said that it was in a parking space where a white windowless Toyota cargo van had been parked when she arrived at the store. She said that the van was being driven by a man with a mustache who appeared to be in his 30s. Police set up roadblock to intercept the vehicle, but the man has never been identified. According to Polaroid officials, the picture had to have been taken after May of 1989, since the particular film used in the photograph was not available until then. The photo was broadcast on the news TV show A Current Affair in July, and Patty was contacted by friends who had seen the show and thought the woman looked like Tara. Relatives of Michael Henley, also of New Mexico, who had disappeared in April 1988, saw the episode and said they believed he was the boy in the photo. Patty and Henley's parents both met with investigators and examined the Polaroid. Dole said that she was certain it was her daughter. She also noted that a scar on the woman's leg was identical to the one that Tara had received in a car accident. In addition, a paperback copy of V.C. Andrews' My Sweet Audrina, said to be one of Tara's favorite books, can be seen lying next to the woman. Both families organized volunteers, printed flyers, and tried to keep the story alive in the news. Patty Dole and her husband were sworn in as auxiliary deputies, which allowed them to contact other law enforcement offices under the auspices of the Valencia County Sheriff. Over the following weeks, sightings of Tara were reported in different locations across the South. Scotland Yard analyzed the photo and concluded that the woman was Tara, but a second analysis by the Los Alamos National Laboratory disagreed. An FBI analysis of the photo was inconclusive. Henley's mother said that she was, quote-unquote, almost certain it was Michael in the Polaroid. 
The identification of the boy in the photograph as Henley is considered highly unlikely, as his remains were discovered in June 1990 in the Zuni Mountains, about seven miles from his family's campsite where, from which he had disappeared. Police believe that Henley wandered off and subsequently died of exposure. Since then, two other Polaroid photographs, possibly of Tara, have been found. Patty believed the first one was Tara, but thought the second may have been a hoax. Her sister stated, quote, they had a striking, uncalming resemblance. As for me, I will not rule them out. But keep in mind, our family has had to identify many other photographs, and all but those three were ruled out, end quote. In 1998, Tara was declared officially dead. A judge ruled her death a homicide, and throughout the years, Patty did everything she could to find her daughter, including to talking to thousands of people, working with law enforcement, and going on talk shows. In 2008, Rene Rivera, the, the sheriff of Valencia County, reported that he received information that two teenagers had accidentally hit Tara with their truck panicked and subsequently killed her. According to Rivera, the boys who knew Calico drove up behind her in a truck and some form of an accident followed. Calico later died and those responsible covered up the crime. Rivera stated that he knew the names of those involved, but that without a body, he could not make a case. He did not release the evidence that led him to this conclusion. Tara's stepfather said that the sheriff should not have made these comments if he was not willing to arrest anyone and that strong circumstantial evidence should be enough for a conviction. In October 2013, a six-person task force was established to reinvestigate Tara's disappearance, and in October 2019, the FBI announced that they are, quote, offering a reward of up to $20,000 for precise details leading to the identification or location of Tara Lee Calico and information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for her disappearance, end quote. In September 2021, the Valencia County Sheriff's Office and the New Mexico State Police issued a statement that they had a new lead in the case and that the focus of a sealed warrant for an unknown private residence located within Valencia County has been issued. However, no other details were provided. But most recently, on June 13, 2023, the Valencia County Sheriff's Office announced a breakthrough in the case. Sheriff Denise Vigil and other law enforcement officers held a press conference on Tara's disappearance and said, quote, at this time, law enforcement believes there is sufficient evidence to submit this investigation to the district attorney's office for review of potential charges, end quote. She continued by saying, quote, currently the identities and specifics of the persons of interest are sealed by the court and will remain so until a court order otherwise, end quote. It appears that new evidence was found stemming from investigative work that began in October 2020. Since then, no further information has been given, and that is as of our recording in mid-September. Sadly, Patty passed away in May 2006 after a series of strokes. Tara's older brother, Chris, said that the stress of his sister's disappearance and its persistent irresolution significantly shortened his mother's life. But like we said, during Patty's life, she never gave up hope of finding her daughter. Del, what are your thoughts and you know on Tara's case and this recent update? So I want to start by saying shout out to Patty. That's really awesome. Just her dedication 
and her focus that she poured into just making sure that the police were doing their job and that the general public knew about her daughter. And, you know, hopefully she's able to get some solace and resting in peace, knowing that hopefully something is going to come out of these newer investigations. I think it's striking how much we know, like timeline-wise, but also I think that there's a lot of information in that sealed document that would provide more of the crucial information. I do think it's strange how long they're taking to release the information. I'm not sure why they automatically sealed it. That seems like a weird step to have taken. I don't know if there's more information out about why they did that. I do think that the recent breakthrough sounds like a good thing. But again, I wonder, like, what's the evidence? Like, why is that evidence significantly different than what you found in 2021, 2019, back to 2013? Like, what is different about it? Is this a true lead? Are you going to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? And did the information that you were provided, does that lead to a location of her body? Because I think that's one of the biggest questions in this case. What are your thoughts? I'm really excited by this new update. And I really hope that it does lead at least to someone's arrest and form of justice. Of course, I would love for Tara's body to be found so her family can really truly be at peace with everything. It is, like you said, Del, very inspiring to hear about her mom and all the parents of missing children that go to work for them in one way or another, raising awareness. I think all the parents that we're going to talk about in this episode, you know, have been through a lot and have tried to make the best of it by keeping their family's name in the news, talking about issues that do affect missing people or like changing laws. There's a lot of respect I have for them. From what I have heard in other podcasts, what Rene Rivera was saying, like the local rumor or what he had some evidence of, the local rumor I heard, like we said, was that Tara was like kind of being harassed by these boys that she knew. We don't know how she knew them. We don't know who they are. And then they hit her. She was going to, she didn't die, but she said like, you just like hurt me severely with your vehicle. I'm going to call the police. And then they panicked and killed her and that there was a cover up. From local rumors that I have heard, it's that, and this is of course alleged, that someone high up within this community, whether it's like a law enforcement official, it was their child that was part of this possible accident. So I'm curious if what Rivera said is true and that's who they're looking into. I really hope we can hear some more about this. And I'm assuming they're keeping it quiet to really build up this case. Maybe it's something that they don't have like smoking gun for, but they're trying to build up the rest of the evidence. Um, I don't know. It seems like it's moving in a really good direction. As for the photograph, 
you can find this one on the internet. I didn't see the other two that were mentioned of her, but the one of Tara and the boy, it is upsetting to see. No one really knows who is in the photo. And it's kind of interesting that like one agency said it wasn't Tara, one said it was, and one said, we don't know. I find that interesting. And I don't know if technology, if you know, is more updated now, if it would lead to different results. But as far as I know, no one has ever been identified in that picture. And more from that, like general area were sent to police of another, I believe, missing boy. That's like a, a whole other rabbit hole to go into with this story. But it, it like I said, it's upsetting to see and I don't know if it's a joke. I don't know why anybody would really take that picture. I don't know if it was part of some prank. I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird part of the story. It's something we'll never know like the truth on, which is like also upsetting, I would say. And then to hear, you know, about Michael Henley's family, another aspect of this story is sad too, but I agree. I don't think it's him in that photo. Yeah, I agree. The thing with the photo and just the back and forth of it, I do hope that, you know, a part of the re-examining of evidence was using updated forensic analysis methods to at least figure out, like, where it was taken, you know, when it was. I know they have a general idea that it was taken after a certain point, but just, you know, being able to hammer in and just the randomness of the location that it was found. Like, could that lead to more information about the case, about who took her, what eventually happened to her? Finally, we get into the disappearance of 19-year-old Brandon Swanson. Brandon was born on July 30th, 1989 in Marshall, Minnesota, to parents Antoinette and Brian Swanson. Brandon had a younger sister named Jermaine. In 2007, he graduated from high school and went on to study wind turbines for a year at the Minnesota West Community and Technical College campus in Canby, Minnesota. On May 13, 2008, Brandon was celebrating the end of the semester with friends in Canby. He attended two different parties and was seen drinking alcohol, but his friends said not enough to make him visibly intoxicated. Brandon left Canby for the 30-mile drive home just before midnight. At 1.54 a.m., he called his parents on his cell phone, telling them he had driven his Chevrolet Lumina off the road and into a ditch from which he could not remove the car. He was not hurt and asked them to come to where he was and pick him up. His parents got in their pickup truck and drove out to where they thought he was about 10 minutes from home, keeping him on the phone despite occasional hangups and drop calls. Brandon stayed with his car and tried to signal them by flashing his light on and off, but they saw nothing and neither did he. Over the phone, they could hear their son working the light switch in his car. Brandon finally gave up and told them he was leaving the car to walk towards lights he could see that led him to believe he was near Lead, Minnesota, a small town roughly seven miles southwest of Marshall. He told his dad to head for the parking lot of a local bar and wait for him there. His father drove home to drop Antoinette off and then headed back to look for the team. 
Brian spoke to his son as he drove. Shortly after 2.30 a.m., 47 minutes into the call, Brandon suddenly said, quote-unquote, oh shit. He was silent for the remainder of the call until his parents hung up and made multiple attempts to call him back. The Swansons and Brandon's friends drove down dirt roads and through farmlands looking for him. Brandon has not been seen or heard from since. Just a few hours later, his parents reported Brandon missing to the Lid Police. They were told at first that it was not unusual for young men that age to stay out all night after the last day of college classes. Annette Swanson specifically recalled that one of the officers said it was Brandon's quote-unquote right to be missing. Police did begin a search that morning but found no trace of Brandon in the town or outside. They requested that the office of the Lydon County Sheriff, John Dale, assist them. To better focus the search, the sheriff's office obtained Brandon's cell phone records, which revealed that Brandon had been calling the vicinity of Taunton along State Highway 68, the main route to Canby, northwest of Marshall, 20 miles from Ludd, and where Brandon thought he was. During a search of the area, Brandon's abandoned car was discovered in a ditch off a gravel road along the Lincoln County line, a mile north of Highway 68, about 25 miles from Ludd. Many found this to be odd as Brandon could have taken a main highway straight home from the party but did not. This location brought the office of that county sheriff's Jack Vizinski, into the investigation. He told the media that the Luminia had gotten hung up on the top of an incline at the edge of the road, not seriously enough to damage the car, but enough to keep the wheels from touching the ground on that side. Nothing else was found wrong with the car, and nothing was found in the vicinity. Due to the grass and gravel in the area surrounding it, there were no tracks and therefore no way to tell what direction Brandon might have started walking in. His cell phone call had been routed through a tower at the intersection of County Routes 3 and 10 near Miniata, another town along Highway 68. By May 15th, the call had been determined to have come from within five miles of the tower. Searchers were concentrating their efforts there. Since part of the circle included Yellow Medicine County of the North, authorities from that jurisdiction also took part. Sheriff Dahl noted that from that area, a red light atop a Taunton grain elevator could be seen. He thought that it was possible that the red light Brandon had seen had led him to believe Lind was within walking distance. Ground searches were being complemented with a flyover by an aerial team. Search dogs were also brought in from the Twin Cities. A team of bloodhounds picked up a three-mile scent trail that mainly followed the field roads west-northwest to an abandoned farm, then along the Yellow Medicine River to a point where it appeared to enter the stream. His father remembered Brandon had mentioned passing fences and hearing nearby water. On the theory that Brandon might have drowned, boats from the state's Department of Natural Resources were deployed along the river and gates were installed. Waters were high on the morning of Brandon's disappearance, but had receded since. Deputies also walked the river's banks, and horses and all-terrain vehicles were deployed. After the original search found no sign of Swanson, most efforts were discontinued. 
Sheriff Vizeki continued to walk the two miles of the Yellow Medicine River in that area every day for 30 days. The Swansons left their porch light on all night every night as a symbol of their hope that Brandon would eventually return or be found and still do. Searches resumed late that fall after fields planted shortly after the disappearance had been harvested. Dogs on those searches continued to follow scents of human remains into an area northwest of Porter that had not been searched earlier. Efforts picked up again in the spring after snow melted, but before planting, which is something that continued through 2011. By that time, 122 square miles had been searched. In 2010, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension took over as lead agency on the case. It set up a tip line, and by 2015, 90 leads had been reported. By that point, when official searches resumed, the area of interest had moved towards Mud Creek, a tributary of the Yellow Medicine, north and northwest of Porter, Minnesota. Many theories abound in Brandon's case, including that he accidentally trespassed on the property of an angry farmer who murdered him that he, he was hit by a vehicle while crossing the road and his body was moved elsewhere, that he somehow ran into a serial killer who murdered him, or that he died from exposure due to the 39-degree temperatures on the night of his disappearance, and his body was either never found or unknowingly run over by farm equipment. Authorities said that Swanson could be anywhere within that 122-square-mile area, Ten years after Swanson vanished, Yellow Medicine County Sheriff Bill Flatted said, quote, it's a huge area. If you take that immediate area where the car was and then the time frame when he was talking over the phone with his parents, who knows what direction he went and how he traveled, end quote. While the trail followed by one of the dogs went to the Yellow Medicine and despite her son's last known words, Annette Swanson does not think he drowned there. After following the scent to the water that dog continued up across the other side and along that riverbank to another gravel road where it continued north towards the Medicine County line and ended. She told CNN, quote, there really is nothing to indicate that he's in the river, end quote. Brian Swanson also recalls that any alcohol his son had consumed earlier in the evening notwithstanding, he did not seem disoriented and or confused during their phone conversations. Brandon could have intentionally disappeared, but his parents do not believe that he would have done that. Sheriff Vizeki said that he could not rule out foul play, even though there was no evidence of it. He said, quote, someone could have been in the shadows and they got him that way, end quote. After the searches, Annette Swanson was still stuck by the initial response of the lid police that her son had quote-unquote, a right to be missing when she told them how old he was. She and Brian began lobbying to, for changes in state law that would require an investigation in the case of a missing adult to begin as soon as it was reported, much as was already required in cases of possibly abducted children. Annette met with Marty Sheriff minority leader of the state house of representatives at the time whose district included marshall he said quote she knew it wouldn't help in her son's case but that it could help others in the future end quote he introduced a bill called quote unquote brandon's law 
that would make the required change by amending the law governing the state's existing missing child program to change the word quote-unquote child to quote-unquote person. He recalled considerable resistance at first from the state's law enforcement community as it was developed in committee partially due to cell phones and the right to privacy. A companion bill was introduced in the state Senate and was signed into law in May 2009 after it passed both houses. The Swanson family attended the ceremony. The effect of the change also required that police, in addition to determining in their preliminary investigation that the reported person is indeed missing, determine whether that person is potentially in dangerous circumstances. They must also notify other nearby law enforcement agencies promptly. Brandon's law also clarifies that the agency taking the report is the lead agency investigating the case, as the absence of that distinction had created some problems in later phases of Brandon's initial search when three different counties were involved. Police were no longer allowed to refuse a report based on an initial belief that no criminal activity was involved. The brevity of the interval since the person was last seen the possibility that the person may have been intentionally disappeared, or the lack of a relationship between the missing person and the reporter. Following the governor's signature, the law took effect at the beginning of July 2009. Four other states have passed similar laws. Del, what do you think of Brandon's case and disappearance? Yeah, I don't see any evidence that something nefarious happened to him, like foul play. I think that there's some credibility to that this was just nature and he wasn't prepared to be in it, especially seems like he was lost and definitely further away from a population center that he was familiar with. So Definitely when people say it might have been exposure, um, I can definitely see that. You add in the rain and, you know, all those elements. Unfortunately, it's a situation of, you know, asking the question, well, where is his body then? Why haven't they been able to find it? Why haven't the bloodhounds been able to track it down? Those are just some unanswered questions for me. What about you? I agree. I think he likely died of exposure and just hasn't been found. I wonder if he may have fallen into the river and was wet. And because of that, he was hypothermic at some point. Like we said, it was only 39 degrees at night. Brandon was also blind in his left eye. And this is like dark remote area. So it's already going to be hard to see. And if you have, you know, a vision impairment, that's not going to make it any easier. I guess the big question is, why didn't he just drive on the main road? And I know some people say like, oh, well, if he had been drinking, maybe he was worried he could get pulled over. Like, even if he wasn't really drunk, maybe he was like paranoid or erring on the side of caution. Who knows? Maybe that could be it. Maybe he didn't want to get, he wasn't in like a hurry to get home. Maybe he wanted to like try out a back way. I don't know, but it's horrible that, I mean, I don't want to say that's what led to his disappearance, but if he wasn't familiar with this area and then he got even more lost thinking he was like nowhere really near where he thought he was, it's so sad. It's just a horrible situation to be in. 
the what the officer said that he had a right to be missing is deplorable, especially because he was calling his parents asking for help. Who would do that if they didn't really need help? It doesn't make any sense to me. And then this is something we've seen in several other cases, just the jurisdiction issues of, well, it's not our responsibility, it's your responsibility. And all this back and forth is so ridiculous to me. I understand that it's like a, a huge area they were looking, but it I don't know, maybe a little bit more of an extensive search, which people talked about doing and the one sheriff said not to go forward with, maybe that would have turned up something, whether it was like clothing or remains or I don't know. I hope that Brandon is found maybe one day. It seems like this is not really like a common area for people to be in. So maybe, you know, we just haven't, no one's come across him yet. But yeah, the jurisdiction thing really bothers me. And like I was saying earlier, it's really wonderful to see Brandon's parents take action and to not have these like stupid jurisdiction issues take place. And I really liked the quote from that representative about how Annette knew it wasn't going to help her find Brandon, but she didn't want other families to go through that. And I think that's really powerful and really beautiful. I definitely agree. I think that parents in these cases definitely display a level of compassion and selflessness that has them not only thinking about their own child, but also parents that may found, find themselves in similar situations. And, you know, what can they do to, you know, make things better for them, make it easier for them to be reunited with their children? I think it's really powerful when people are able to use personal circumstances, personal traumas and tragedies uh, you know, turn that around to help someone else and make a real difference in this state. I think it's a huge deal to have it where just because you're an adult doesn't mean that you're going missing is something that can be lax or the police can just wait around. And I agree, it's absolutely deplorable to say, well, he has a right to be missing. Well, if you really think that he went missing on his own, then prove that. You know, do a welfare check. Do your job. Check up on him. And if he tells you himself, okay, well, you know, I just want to be left alone, then fine. You can leave it there. But just off the cuff, not to investigate and to try to say, well, he has the right to be missing. It's so disheartening and so just needlessly rude to a parent that's just looking for her child. We wanted to end this episode with a look into the Charlie Project, which is personally a resource I used uh, researching these cases we've talked about and many others that we've talked about on the podcast or that I've heard about in general. Just wanted to highlight the work that they're doing. According to their website, quote, the Charlie Project profiles over 15,000 quote-unquote cold case missing people mainly from the United States, end quote. Though it doesn't investigate cases, it serves as a publicity tool for missing people who are, quote, often neglected by the press and forgotten all too soon, end quote. To be listed, a person must have been missing for to be listed, a person must have been missing for at least one year. The Charlie Project tries to catalog 
as many cases as possible into a database as a publicity slash investigative aid for the public and law enforcement to help solve cases. A wide variety of sources are used, such as other databases, news media accounts, law enforcement information supplied by friends and family members of the missing, and books, and all the information contained therein is summarized on each missing person's Charlie Project case file. In this way, instead of having to track down, say, 20 different news articles from five different news sources about a missing person, someone that's interested can just go onto the Charlie Project website and find everything in one place. It's not affiliated with any private investigators or a law enforcement. Megan Good founded the Charlie Project on October 12, 2004, but the website started as the Missing Persons Cold Case Network, the MPCCN, which was founded in 2001 by Jennifer Mara, who also went on to found the Doe Network. The site was named in honor of Charles Brewster Ross, who was abducted from his home in Germantown, Pennsylvania, on July 1st, 1874, when he was just four years old. His family spent the rest of their lives looking for him in a search that extended over the world and gained international attention. And it was one of the first highly publicized abductions in the world, really, just not even in America. Sadly, Charlie was never found, and there is no evidence to show what may have happened to him. And his picture also appears on website banners on the charlieproject.com. The website is not only dedicated to Charlie, but to the memories of all other long-missing people in the U.S. so that they are not forgotten. I think it's a really great website, so if you're interested in learning about a majority of of missing persons cases, you can find a lot of things on there. I think it's pretty extensive in a lot of cases, and I've definitely learned a lot from it. And they also accept donations. Um, So if you are looking to help out somehow, they do accept donations. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the disappearances of Asia, Tara, and Brandon. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the crimes of Ed. As always, stay safe.